Welcome to All Business. This is Jeffrey Hazlett, and this week on the show, we've got Greg Mason, the CEO of Perch. Now, Perch has been known by a lot of different names. They've bought a number of companies. In fact, they bought eight companies over the last couple of years and have grown this media company into a juggernaut. Now, Greg used to be the EVP at WebMD. He was at CNET Networks and has held a lot of different positions in the publishing world, electronic and non-electronic. And now he's talking about growing this business with integrity and customer focus in a changing landscape in media and advertising. And we're here to talk about it all. And there's some great takeaways that you're going to find in this show. And let's welcome Greg Mason. From Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, uh, Greg, so first thing, thanks for joining us. And then I want to start talking to you right off the bat and ask you the big question. What are the forces reshaping media and advertising? seems like every time I turn around right now, there's something new. So where do you think it's going? Well, I think there are two big dimensions. Number one starts with a consumer. And everything that we're seeing with respect to how we as consumers have so much more choice with respect to how, where, when, and on what terms we consume media. If you just look at time shifting in broadcast media, that's a pretty obvious trend that we're all sort of living through and experiencing. On the other side of the equation, what's not getting as much attention are the shifts that are taking place in the advertising marketplace. And there are a couple mm-hmm. of dynamics occurring there. First, there are more avenues that marketers can spend money to reach their target audiences than they've ever had before. So there's a tremendous amount of fragmentation um, in the advertising market. And then you also have another, I would say, mega trend occurring with respect to how marketing dollars are getting spent and under what sort of characteristics those those investments are being evaluated. So I think what we're seeing is a lot more of an emphasis on a very clear return on investment from uh, marketers and marketers having to take more responsibility than they've ever had before. The old days of, you know, 10, 20 years ago when you saw, you know, a huge wave of image-oriented advertising where there wasn't really a very specific and defined ROI associated in most cases with that kind of spending. Much of that, I think, has gone away. And the digital advertising marketplace is driving a lot of that orientation towards return on investment in advertising and marketing. You know, the word I would use, it just got real. You know, before I could be a chief marketing officer and I was pretty much the chief advertising officer to some extent. And most CMOs were coming from the, uh, the brand side of the business. Now most CMOs are coming from the business side. And when they come from the business side, they're measuring a lot more. So without question, I think it's just gotten real. We just didn't check it as well. We didn't have the tools available before the real digital revolutions that's occurred. Right, Greg? I think that's right. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago when, you know, we heard the the old adage, well, you know, I spent, I waste 50% of my of my advertising budget. I just don't know which 50%, right? And that's, it's yeah. kind of, if you think about marketing and uh, it's kind of the last bastion of waste in some respects yeah. um, with respect mm-hmm. to how companies spend money. 
Well, that's what, I mean, Eric Schmidt, you remember, as chairman of uh, Google, once said that when he was CEO, that was it was the last bastion of unchecked uh, marketing spend, was the last bastion of unchecked marketing, or dollars at all. Because, you know, and I could be successful. I could be a CMO, and if I bought a Super Bowl ad or I bought the Wall Street Journal. In fact, I used to, when I was a CMO of Kodak, used to buy the Wall Street Journal, not because of anything other than I want investors to see the ad, or and I wanted the board of directors to see the advertising. Outside of that, you know, for a consumer buy, it was a waste of time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think the other thing too is way back when you may have had, you know, beyond those sort of those the sort of characteristics you just described, you may have had a reason to specifically target that audience. Um, and yeah. many companies do, but I would argue that that same audience today is fairly easy to reach in literally thousands of different environments, right? Now, Wall Street Journal is still a fairly specialized audience in general, um, but if you you name your target audience as a marketer, you now have thousands of choices versus tens or hundreds of choices, you know, from 10, 20 years ago, depending on your time perspective. Yeah, and with those choices, though, how how do you know to pick the right one? Well, I mean, that's this is where there's an art and there's a there's a science to that. But um, you know, name your objective as a marketer, and although there's more choice, it it is I think harder to determine um, where uh, you are going to get the biggest bang for the buck. Um, I really believe that um, we're also moving from a, from an orientation, a marketing orientation, whereby which. Uh, marketers are are naturally thinking from the bottom of the funnel versus the top of the funnel in many respects, mm-hmm. and I think that the that the the first place that marketers have to think about spending money is at the bottom of the funnel and capturing someone who happens to have purchase intent for one reason or another in a particular product or in a particular category. I think that's one of the reasons Google's been so successful. You referenced uh, them previously, and um, they're, they've created this incredible mousetrap to capture uh, in-the-moment purchase intent, right? Yeah. So at the point at which someone is actually re- researching a product or a service. Yeah, and then resell that out to as many people as people that want to buy that. And the, the problem is once I bought that table, I don't need to see that table popping up on my uh, Facebook feed for the next three weeks either. You well, know, yeah, that's not, part- that, that's exactly right, and they, you know, that you're you're referencing retargeting, which is a form mm-hmm. of programmatic advertising, and it's been estimated that um, about seventy percent of all retargeting is wasted for their mm-hmm. for that exact reason. You've already bought the product; you don't need it. You don't need to see it again. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, quit, quit reminding me I spent the money on it already. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and as a marketer, I hate to see people waste money that way, but that you see it all the time. But I think what you just said, and in fact, that's going to be one of my key learnings, is the bottom of the funnel, not the top of the funnel, that purchase intent. You know, the focus for most executives is to figure out why the hell they're buying in the first place. And once to understand that, then you can you can focus on the bottom of the funnel, which I think is a lot more important. So, you know, it's like even on our C-suite network, C-suite TV, C-suite radio, when I sit down with the executives, you know, first thing ad agencies and groups do will ask me, well, how many clicks, how many eyeballs, how many views? I said, wrong question. How many do you need? You know, let's focus on that. How many do you need to, at the bottom of the funnel? Let's work our way backwards to get what you need, you know, based on that. Yeah, and correct. it'll be a lot better buy for you. Correct. You know? 
Correct. Yeah. So talk to me about Perch, because I want to understand that, because you, you've, you've gone through a couple of iterations in your own career, which has just been fantastic to see uh, all the things that you've done. I covered those in the intro. But I also want to talk about the, the company itself. You, you renamed the company. Why did you rename the company? Well, we had a, a name for the company that we didn't – we were previously called Tech Media Network before we renamed mm-hmm. Perch, and we didn't want to be defined – uh, as a tech company per se, we certainly didn't think of ourselves as a media company. And because we're mostly, you know, sites that we own and operate, we don't want to be thought of as a network. <laughs> so there were, yeah. there were three yeah. aspects of that name that we didn't like. And then Perch, <laughs> so Perch is strike, uh, strike one, strike two, strike three, that's, right? That's right. That's right. And, and Perch, if not obvious, is short for purchase. And so we wanted kind of a punchy, you know, potentially consumer-friendly name that was uh, highly descriptive, but not too descriptive. And, uh, you know, we went through a, a naming exercise. We we found this, you know, crazy guy that works out of his basement in San Francisco, and he's just brilliant at this exercise of defining uh, corporate names. And uh, yeah. uh, so, but we went there because we want, we did really get back to your question. We wanted, we wanted a name that was more reflective uh, of the long-term, you know, mission and strategy for the for the business. That's cool. Well, let me take a quick break, and I want to come back to the name. Could I actually? Uh, I love the fact that it's it, it is spelled P U R C H, but uh, for purchase. But I also had another take on it as well. So let me come back to that in just a second. Yeah. Speaking of purchase, I love Dunkin' Donuts, but I hate the lines, uh, especially in the morning when I'm in New York, or or sometimes even in an airport because uh, Dunkin's pretty much everywhere. So what I've done is I've downloaded their smartphone app, and I skip the line. I order my morning coffee in advance, place my order, I pay before I leave. I just just tap ready for pickup and when it's uh it's go time i skip the line with an app like this it's easy to see whether america runs on duncan and so does all business so, greg are you a coffee drinker big time yeah me too i've got like a, a like a double espresso sitting here right in front of me and i've already had three this morning so it's going going like crazy well my duncan my plug is i i get a uh, a dark roast with a turbo shot every morning so yeah, there you go. Do you, do you every once in a while have a donut? You're yeah. I saw you. You're a thin guy. I'm a big guy. You're a thin guy. Do you have a donut? Do you have a donut every once in a while? Yeah, every once in a while. Sundays every once in a while. <laughs> oh, I like Sunday. I like Sunday donuts. That's good. Hey, um, so when I saw Perch, I actually thought of it in, in terms of what you do, like perched on the edge of change, perched on the edge of models, perched on the edge of, of purchasing. That's where I saw it from as a, as a play on words there. But did, was that ever a consideration? Yeah, there was a little bit of a double entendre there for sure. Yeah. But uh, it, yeah. it was more really the real orientation was just, you know, the focus uh, the focus on purchasing and, and where we really set ourselves apart, where our business model really sets itself apart is helping people you know, decide what to buy in a, in a wide range of considered purchase product categories. Yeah, and you, in, in the categories, you've made a lot of company purchases. I mean, you've bought like eight companies, Business.com, uh, Shop Savvy, um, and a number of those. Is that part of the overall strategy in terms of, is acquisition still part of your strategy in terms of growth? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've been acquisitive both to acquire brands that um, we could bring under our portfolio and apply our sort of marketplace expertise um, and at the same time, we bought a lot of technology that could enable that vision as well. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, today we've we've acquired eight companies. We're we're always on the hunt for the next uh, the next great acquisition, and always in the market looking. 
That's fair. Well, that's a good. And there's a lot of news about media mergers, acquisitions. I mean, there's the possible Time Inc. acquisition. What do you think will drive the next waves of media M&A? Well, I think there's been a lot of rumors about Time Inc. and Meredith. And then, of course, we're close to the closing of the AOL acquisition of Yahoo. And I think both Mm -hmm. of those acquisitions are probably, first and foremost, around... um, you know, scale and the ability to compete more effectively against the against the new behemoths, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. Um, at the same time, there's a there's a major um, cost efficiency, you know, dimension of these yeah. acquisitions as well. These companies are going to have a hard time surviving um, by themselves. And uh, yeah. you know, if you just look at Yahoo, AOL, that's uh, uh, unfortunately, they're going to be their job redundancies there that are going to easily be into the thousands of individuals. I mean, how do you feed that engine? I mean, you, uh, look, I've been the CEO of a company, and you you have CNET and so many other companies that you've been with over the years. How, I mean, how do you feed that engine? That's massive. Yeah, it's it's huge. I I think that yeah. um, AOL and Yahoo, given the total size of the audiences that they reach, and even though you could argue that many of their brands and services might have seen better days, um, there's still a lot of audience that they're attracting. And in the case of AOL, they've invested aggressively into uh, advertising uh, technology and such, and. Uh, you know, I think it's a it's a very complicated task. I think companies that go through major mergers like that, the the process of sort of driving the efficiency out of the business often takes most of the oxygen out of the room and most of the oxygen away from you know true innovation on behalf of marketing customers. But they've got a lot of their disposal um, to compete more effectively, I think, in the ad market uh, together than they would be able to as separate parts. You combine that with, you know, the Verizon connection and, you know, the, the handset and the cell phone sort of capabilities that they get there. And I think they got a fighting chance. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's I, I, I laughed out loud at a conference the other day because, you know, here I come from the printing world years ago, then television and a little bit of radio, and now I'm in OTT and, and um, podcasting. And then at the conference, someone referred to Yahoo as old media. <laughs> and I, I, I did exactly what you just did. I laughed, except I was really loud. I laughed out loud. I, I, if I if I had been drinking Duncan, I would have done a spit take right there. Yeah. Well, um, I think I think but, you know, Time Inc. and Meredith is you are dealing with older media, and I think yeah. the real the real challenge there is obviously the fact that you know they do. In the case of Meredith, they have they have broadcast asset assets, but I think the real the real issue there are the print assets. You know, and yeah. most. Most print magazines, I'm afraid to say, you know, they won't be around 10 years from now. Certain categories, you can argue they will, there's more persistence. But uh, for the most part, we're seeing all these companies struggle pretty mightily with, uh, with print assets. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Although there's some great assets. I mean, Fortune and others where you think, man, money, you know, those are two good assets they have over there that you think you could do something with. Yeah. I mean the Fortune 100 list, you know, the Fortune 1000, Fortune 5000. Well, I think I think the the underlying value of the of the content that they produce and um, the various services that spawn from those, there's no questioning the value of those, but um, the 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 economics of serving 
you know, print magazines and a consumer's desire to spend any meaningful time with a print magazine just simply isn't there any longer. It's not to say they won't want to consume that high value content through other means, obviously through digital means, but, um, you know, the, the economics of the print side of the equation are just increasingly tough, especially when you have so many dollars being pulled out uh, of print advertising on the parts of marketers. And that's really the, that's really the catalyst for the, for the issues that they face. But even on the decisions to pull it out of print, the, you know, the way they buy today, you know, to typically as if I was an advertiser, I would buy a fairly, you know, buy across the whole board, but now they're buying it at $17 a click or $17 a read in or $17 here. So they're, they're getting very minute in terms of being able to measure the effectiveness of that. So it's changed the scope yeah, a great deal. Completely. Yeah. Are you having to provide more tools then for the advertiser or are you able to get it from outside, meaning it's coming in and you're just having to adapt to the way in which they're doing it? We've been, whereas we've seen a lot of media companies invest significantly in, you know, native advertising capabilities and those kinds of things. We, because our core sort of content uh, orientation is around what we call decision enablement, we're, we're doing product reviews, for example, in about 1,200 different categories. We put so much of our emphasis on that user experience, that in turn drives an audience with a very specific low funnel um, level of purchase intent. And it allows us to create a really seamless connection between buyer and seller. But it really starts with the quality of the audience and what's unique about the audience that they are in the market to purchase something. And so consequently, we do use a lot of you know tools and such, and we make those capabilities available to marketing partners. But it's not the be-all, end-all for us. It really starts with the quality of the audience, and we find that we see a very nice conversion of consumer to some form of, you know, low funnel activity like a purchase um, very readily from from the kinds of experiences we're creating. So tell me the model for you then, that your 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 revenue model. Is it just off of the advertising and eyeballs, or is it around place content as well? It's almost entirely based on referral fees. So we, as I said, we, we do product reviews in about 1,200 different categories. Every day we reach thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are in the market to purchase products. A significant percentage of people who, who consume that content, they undertake some sort of activity where we get paid. It could be a click on an affiliate link, meaning it could be a click mm-hmm. to Amazon where we get a fee. It could be um, a user filling out a form where we sell um, referral information or a lead to a to a marketing partner. Um, it could be our um, getting credit for the downstream sale of someone jumping from our site to a marketer site and ultimately purchasing the product. So it's a it's a wide variety of those kinds of uh, activities where for which we're essentially. Um, getting paid a success fee for a consumer or a small business owner um, making some form of transaction. 
But it's also about the underlying piece that you've got to be a trusted place, right? Absolutely. I mean, you you have to be, a, you know, it's like, for instance, the stuff we do at C-Suite TV and C-Suite Radio, obviously we, you know, we host shows, so they're paying us to get on the platform. But somebody says, well, that's like getting paid for placement. I go, well, it's a little different. If it's, if it's bad content, no one's going to watch it, whether it's paid for or not paid for. And it needs to be completely independent content. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's really key. And, and due to the fact that we're reviewing products, we need to make it abundantly clear that there's, you know, marketers or vendors don't have any input or say into how we rate or review products. Yeah, especially when it comes to rating or reviewing, because people have to be able to, it's got to be organic. It's got to be able people to be able to speak and say their mind uh, independently. I like that. So speaking of independent, let me let me talk about independence, liberty tax. That's a uh, give me liberty, give me death. Patrick Henry. I remember that from my fourth grade play. How about that? If you're looking to own your own business, talk with the folks at Liberty Tax Service. I love these guys. John's the founder. Martha is the CMO. Chuck is one of their top sales executives. Gordon and so many. I just, I, I love the people at the top and I love the people out in the field because I get a chance to meet them all the time. Liberty has been named the best of the best in the financial services by Entrepreneur Magazine. Love those guys over there too. Guys and gals. When I say guys, please understand it's both sides. All right. No, no letters. You can tweet it if you want. Nothing wrong with that. They provide great support and a solid structure for small business owners. We're talking about Liberty Tax. You know, just email me. I'll put you in touch with the top guy if you want. So let's, I'm going to talk a little bit about your your values a little bit if I can uh, Greg because when you when you've come from different companies and then and then of course you you went out and bought eight companies and you put all this together you rebrand it um, how, how do you get all the, how do you get to pull that together from a corporate value perspective you know growth with integrity and then your customer focus how do you pull that together it's a lot of hard work um, from the earliest days of the company that you have to stay focused on consistently, right? And so in our case, um, when I took over what was then called Tech Media Network, it was a much smaller company. Um, But at that point, you know, I was the new guy. I brought in a significant portion of the executive team and I made it, I mandated from day one that culture was going to be an area in the development of the business that um, we were all going to focus on consistently. And um, it was very, very important for me to have both have the opportunity, but to work with the team to sort of create um, an environment that we all wanted to work in, but that we thought would be an environment where a variety of different sort of individuals with different skills and different personalities could could thrive. I have this belief that you know growth is fuel, and so you want to create an environment where for which people feel you know motivated and supported and feel like they're developing their careers, but they also need to understand that 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 is going to be significantly facilitated by the business's ability to prosper and grow. And so, how do we create? that kind of environment for mutual success. And so our selection of the sort of values that that we live behind, growth of integrity being the leading values, it it came as a result of, I can't tell you how many um, sort of sessions and offsites that we had to really zero in, you know, on that lead value uh, and the importance of that lead value. And that lead value, although to a certain degree, I've had to clarify this a lot with our staff, 
it's not growth in revenue per se. Growth in revenue and profit is an output of the growth in how we exceed expectations of our customers, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really about the fundamentals of, of customer expectation management and growth in your overall value proposition. So besides just putting out a memo about that, how do you, how do you get the team to focus on that? Well, it's sort of relentless discussion, uh, reminders, and reinforcement that, you know, we are employed at the pleasure of our customers. I mean, that's the nature of business. And so there's a constant effort. And in the case of when you're a publisher, you have two distinct customer sets. You have the users of your websites number one, and then you have your marketing partners, right? And so you have to, to a certain degree, you have to think about them in a discrete way and you have to go through different processes um, to underline and understand what value you're currently delivering and how you want to expand that value proposition. But, you know, every day you have to wake up and you have to ask yourself, you know, why did I, why do I have people um, coming to my sites today? What can we do to better um, enhance our, our core mission and what we're trying to accomplish for them? And I don't have an easier way to say it than that you have to focus on it each and every day. And you have to reinforce the idea that I have found in every company I've ever worked in, that the bigger a company gets, the more successful it gets, the easier it is for, um, you know, the rank and file team members to lose sight of what they're really there to accomplish. And it's very easy for companies to get distracted. So I love the word relentless. I actually put that in my last book, The Rewards of Being Relentless. I think that's who's, if you're successful, it's about being relentless. When you, you mentioned all the things that you measure with customer success, do you have a dashboard that you look at on a daily basis with people? Is it up on the wall? Is it, is it reinforced in some way that they could see it and see how they're, they're progressing? Yeah, we have, uh, we have big monitors all over our offices and um, we have KPIs that we're broadcasting um, through all of those. And, you know, we have, you know, a lot of a lot of like publishing businesses, for example, make the mistake of sort of counting eyeballs. And yeah. we're definitely in a post-eyeball world. So we, we've come up with a proprietary measure related to engagement. And so we have a KPI that everyone stares at and everyone has access to, and it measures how we are engaging every user on every session, right? Getting, you know, it's very important as a publisher, and this is true for a lot of different businesses, is, you know, customers sometimes get abstracted, right? In the publish, in the digital publishing world, they get abstracted into unique users, you know, and page views and those kinds of things. Whereas we're trying to develop KPIs where for which we can have more appreciation for that human on the other side of the screen. <laughs> what problems yeah. do they have that you can solve for them, right? What's the real meaning of their question, you know, and trying to intuit what they're really trying to accomplish themselves when they, when they end up at one of your sites. Well, you know, I wrote down early on when you were talking about return on investment, I actually turned, wrote down ROI equal engagement. 
because to me that's really what we're measuring these days is more around that the more engaged our community is the more value they really have for us and it's not always just about the sales but it's about time on site contributing comments and it's, it's just changed the way that we've looked at it before like we used to as you we said earlier in the, the show the media and advertising just changed because we used to just shout this stuff at them all the time and I, I don't I think if they would have had mechanisms 30 years ago to tell us what they thought they we would have we would have been a lot further along than we are today well and I, I think what you just described there is the crux of the the changes that we're seeing in the media landscape right we're moving from this eyeball centric world to a world that is going to require much more meaningful engagement and customer relationships um, mm. and again a lot of that is wrought by the by the changes that are are underway in the advertising ecosystem and then of course you know the fact that consumers just have so much more control over what they consume and where and how they consume it well, as you as you were right, if you want to find a you know fourteen year old women who right left handed play softball, you know in size fourteen shoes, you can find them. Well, it might only be a few of them, but you can find them. Yep. And and you've and you've got to change the way in which you spend the money to find them. Once you find them, is then it's around the engagement and how you spend the money to keep them. So, correct. You know, when I look at a lot of startups, especially post startups, you know. You had a company that was already out there and they grow from five to 20 million in size. They break even, make a little money. But but you've gone from a post startup to you know, well over 100 million bucks in revenue. How? Well, I think first and foremost, we've thought long and hard about the long-term strategy and the opportunity that we had before us. I think a lot of, a lot of companies have an initial idea it gets them to a, a certain point in time where they begin to sort of tap out, um, reach a certain limit, you know, to what that opportunity was. Many businesses that I see that reach the five to twenty million level, they're really not full products as much as they are, you know, features of broader products. And I think defining what that broader product or that broader service offering might be um, over time and being very cognizant uh, and conscious of where the world is going, that's the starting point with respect to defining the path from getting from 5, 10, 20 million to a $100 million plus company. I think the other really critical aspect once you've decided upon what that path is and you've determined that it is a viable uh, path is determining whether or not you have the right team you know to get you there and yeah. uh, you know many of those folks uh, the age-old adage there there are definitely people at least in my experience who are brilliant entrepreneurs and startup individuals that um, they just lose their passion when it comes to you know, scaling a business beyond that sort of idea stage and that idea proof stage. And that's really where their, you know, DNA is all about. God love them, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, getting it to the next level takes a completely different skill set and probably a different team. 
you know, I'm reminded of the evolution of an entrepreneurial business for those listening in. You know, you start off as a one-man band, then you typically add devout followers, and the third stage is then finding the right kinds of people for the right kinds of jobs, skilled tacticians, professionals. And a lot of companies have a tough time making that transition. And I want you to listen to what Greg said. Sometimes you you got to love them, but you got to say goodbye. We'll miss you. Um, it's just part of what you have to do. Well, so what's next for you guys? What's next on the horizon for you, Greg? Are you gonna tell me who you're gonna buy next? Well, we're uh, we're we're still looking. Nothing nothing to report uh, today specifically. Um, you know, we have we're managing a lot of growth from our core organic business. Um, I will let you know that uh, a little bit later this week we're going to you know, formally announce that we have relaunched. Uh, business.com, uh, one of the mm-hmm. acquisitions that we made about a year ago now. We're very excited about the small and medium business uh, marketplace, and we've done some really innovative things to fuel um, uh, our marketplace model as it applies to the small and medium business community. So we're really excited about getting that off the ground, but um, we have a variety of other uh, internal growth initiatives and we're managing a lot of growth now internally, even before we think about bringing on another company. Always the challenge, isn't it? Managing the growth. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you talk with me today here on All Business and talk about what are the forces reshaping media, advertising, and then the you know the decisions to buy and how to keep it, how to keep the growth moving and and customer focus. We've been talking with Greg Mason. Greg Mason, thank you so much and good luck at Perch. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Cheers. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about some of the key things I learned. I kind of alluded to one of them right smack in the middle or the beginning of the interview, and that's the bottom of the funnel, not the top. And I think that's very, very important. We've really shifted. We used to think of like a shotgun down to a rifle. Now we're talking about hypodermic needle, okay? The shift needs to be why are they buying what they're buying when they buy it, okay? How do they feel about it? And know what the purchase intent is. And then from there, go out and try to find people. Rather than find all business people, find again, as I mentioned before, if you want to find women who write left-handed size 14 shoes and 14 years of age and play softball, you can find them. Not very many, but that's what it's about. So really get in, you know, mirrored down in uh, you know in terms of intent and then really get hyper focused then on finding those people and i thought that was a great thing the other thing is i liked his discussions around the corporate identification you know i talk about it in my book think big act bigger the rewards of being relentless about a cadence you know a cadence what's your cadence your energy your environment to work in and the variety that you can make it in terms of thriving and then i last but not least i love kpis and measurements i love putting up Hey, how do we measure our whether or not we're successful? So speaking of being success, the only way I'm a success is if you share this out with your friends. So please do me a favor and refer this show and any other show, the hundreds that we've done so far, to a friend because you've been listening to all business right here on C-Suite Radio. Welcome to C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.